What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. The, the creepiest, <laughs> the creepiest story <laughs> kind of about her moment, that I ever heard was that two men were out hunting. Uh-huh. And they were camped near the cabin or something that she's supposed to haunt. No, uh-huh. no. And they disappeared off the face of the earth. No. Really? Okay, it's all right, Ingrid. I'm just telling a scary story, but it's not true. But it no. is true, Adam. You still doing your World Wide Web searches on Alta Vista, Josh? Three student filmmakers still missing. I know. 20 years later, the Blair Witch Project is obviously still working its voodoo on some of us. This week on the show, we take another look at the landmark found footage movie. It's part of our 9 from 99 series. Plus, we've got the first film in our Marlena Dietrich, Joseph von Sternberg marathon, 1930s The Blue Angel. All that and more. I'm scared to close my eyes, and I'm scared to open them. Ahead on Film Spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You're listening to Film Spotting. This week, the start of our hastily assembled, though long in the making, Film Spotting marathon devoted to Marlena Dietrich and Joseph von Sternberg. We'll talk about 1930s The Blue Angel, Dietrich and von Sternberg, Josh, their first collaboration together. Very excited about this. This is one I'm going into pretty much completely blind. Me too. Just some background knowledge, but I've seen none of these films, very little of other work by either of these two. So this is going to be good. We will also return to our 9 from 99 series, our year-long 20th anniversary celebration of the great movie year 1999. We've previously reconsidered The Matrix, Fight Club, and The Sixth Sense. More on the 9 from 99 series over at filmspotting.net slash Nine from 99. This week, we're going to take another look at one of your movie darlings, Josh, The Blair Witch Project, number one for you back in 99. Indeed. There are maybe a few things I'd switch up now about that list, that top 10 list from 1999. I don't think I'd change this. Really? I don't think so. And I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. I am so, so sorry. Because it is my fault. Because it was my project. The search of the three missing Montgomery College students continues in Frederick County tonight. Ten days and thousands of man hours have been unable to produce any clues. We have a few leads, a um, few other options we want to take advantage of and just try to put together some, uh, some pieces to this puzzle. Do you believe the occult may be involved in the disappearance of your son? I'm so scared. 
In his book about 1999, Best Movie Year Ever, author Brian Raftery recounts that at the Blair Witch Project's opening night celebration, a celebration that included lines around the block and multiple sold-out showings, the film's three stars took in the scene standing under some construction scaffolding across the street from New York's Angelica Film Center. It was the closest they'd get to their own coming-out party. As far as their distributor was concerned, Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, and Joshua Leonard were three student filmmakers who disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland in October of 1994. They even updated the actors' IMDb pages to show them as deceased. We wanted them to be dead, artisan marketing director John Hegeman told Raftery. If they're alive, the gig is up, and everyone knows it's just a movie. The gig, reinforced by a host of similarly sneaky pre-release promotional tactics, such as the production of an hour-long sci-fi channel special I remember catching while flipping channels one night back in 99, worked, of course. Directed by Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Myrick for $60,000 and purchased by Artisan at Sundance for just over a million, Blair Witch became a full-on phenomenon, grossing more than $250 million worldwide, garnering mostly critical raves and sparking the cries of overhype that usually accompany such phenomena. Inherent in the exercise of this 9 from 99 series is considering a cultural touchstone removed from its original context. Is the Matrix as woe-inducing when its red pill, blue pill ruminations and groundbreaking action techniques are both commonplace? How does Fight Club's brand of toxic masculinity play in the Me Too era? The Blair Witch Project, for me, in some ways presents a simpler but trickier conundrum. The vast majority of audiences in 99 watched it believing that it was, to some degree, real that it was a film made from found footage, not a found footage film, or at least believing that the book on its shadowy authenticity remained open, not shut. Any doubts or discrepancies only fueled the hype. Fight Club and The Matrix blew our minds, but we always knew they were just movies. Not long after Sundance, still months away from that mid-July opening at the Angelica, Artisan held a screening in New Jersey. It didn't go well. Lots of walkouts. According to Raftery, the response convinced the filmmakers to cut a few minutes, replace some of the really shaky footage, and drop five times the movie's original budget on a new sound mix. But the dismal early preview also made it clear, Raftery writes, that Artisan couldn't spring the Blair Witch Project on unsuspecting moviegoers. We had to get word of mouth percolating. To give it a better chance of being a huge hit? Or to give it a better chance of avoiding more screenings like the one in Jersey? A good movie certainly deserves a good marketing campaign, Josh, but should a good movie require a good marketing campaign? 20 years later, stripped of her mysterious shroud, does the Blair Witch have any fur or was a false pretense the foundation for all of its success? I'd forgotten about the fur. Yeah, me that too. That description. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Just when you think you've got your arms around this thing and it's not going to creep you out anymore. This is, I hadn't thought about it, but this is yet another twist movie in a sense. Yeah. The Sixth Sense we also did as part of this series. Mm-hmm. They've all had that back in 1999. This one, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, a twist in terms of what the marketing was trying to do. I suppose it was easier then when the internet was not quite as connected mm-hmm. and pervasive to pull something like this off. Um, but when I saw The Blair Witch Project, I think it played in Chicago maybe by September, late August, maybe around August, something like that. I had I knew what the reality was. Was that the case for you when you saw it or were you still kind of unclear? Well, you know, I was just a hick in Iowa, right, at the time. I think I was in – I know I was in Iowa City. I hope Iowa you're not City. saying Iowans are more easily fooled, Adam. Mm. No, I wouldn't. Good. Yeah, that's probably true, Josh. That's exactly (laughs) what I'm suggesting. But it was 99. I was back in Iowa. 
I swear that I watched this movie either on VHS or on DVD. Okay. I know 99 was when I got my first DVD player, September of 99. So I watched it on home video, whatever the, the format okay. was. And I think what I was suggesting in the setup there held true for me, which was maybe I didn't fully believe it was 100% real, mm -hmm. but I thought there was some doubt and mystery about it. And okay. that definitely did play into my first experience with the movie. Okay. Well, yeah, to go back to your question, I think in a sense, the false pretense, as you describe it, it almost sets a higher bar for the movie. And it makes it have to, yes, maybe draw in initial crowds, maybe lead to that word of mouth. But once that subsides and what, once that ebb goes away, the movie would be totally forgotten if there was not more there. And the fact that we're even considering it for this series from 1999, 20-some years later, I think speaks to the fact that there is more here. I think focusing too much on the marketing campaign also just gives it, it gives it too much credit, really. And it does a disservice to the things that truly make this I think it's a horror horror masterpiece, a genre masterpiece. Those two things I would say are form and performances that really distinguish it among that genre. So let me geek out on the form a little bit here mm. with you, and then maybe we can get back to the performances later. But you might ask, how do two first-time filmmakers with no budget, how do they create something that I feel is this accomplished? And it's not that difficult when you realize ultimately they stripped all the complications away. They just went elemental with this thing and exploited the way that we use our senses to gather information when we go to the movies. Mm -hmm. Write down motion, light, sound, right down to those things. That's what they were going to concentrate on, and they manipulated them brilliantly. So you have these long stretches of black on the screen forcing us to use our ears mm -hmm. and then filling our ears with things like those clacking rocks or, or the far-off cries of a baby. The lighting, by pulling back on the lighting and illuminating just spindly branches, these broken logs that we see right in front of us, but leaving the space beyond that dark still that just suggests it's all about what we can't hear and what we can't see, right? And, mm -hmm. and that's another way this movie manipulates us. And the atmospheric details. Every time I rewatch this, even after years and movies of shaky cam, um, there is something less contrived about the use of shaky cam here that gives it an extra authenticity. Maybe it's things like, Maybe it's that you know they're shaking from fear, like and Maybe. cold. You know, you see the the breath. Yeah. You see Heather's breath drift past the lens, so you know it's cold out there. Uh, and then just let me give you one more thing. This is one that I didn't notice until a rewatch, maybe of just a couple of years ago. But ingenious formal touches like this, where those final moments in the house were seen for some of the action, we're seeing it through that 16-millimeter camera that Heather is holding. But we're hearing her mm -hmm. screams from the video camera that Mike has dropped about 15 feet ahead. And the dislocation, disassociation that that creates yeah. is it, it's just it, it makes us feel uncentered and unmoored in a way that what we're seeing feels like reality. But what we're experiencing is 
is supernatural. Yeah. Um, and, and so so I think the form of this thing so mm. outlasts any marketing scheme that, yeah, the marketing helped, no doubt, um, but it's not why this movie is still a classic. Yeah, that moment really does stand out. As a former film student once myself, around this same time, actually, I was definitely aware on this viewing, not back in 99, that the camera she's shooting with at the end, that 16 millimeter black and white camera doesn't have sound. Right. You have to record the sound separately. So anything we're hearing is coming from that camera from a completely different space. And you're right. It's definitely spooky. It's definitely a little bit jarring there. I do want to talk about, I suppose, the form a little bit and the performances and just in general, that kind of sense of authenticity that they managed to pull off. Narrative films require us to suspend disbelief, right? To forget these people and this scenario is all fake and just go with it. Go with whatever story is being presented to us. The Blair Witch Project is unique in that it challenges us to suspend belief, no matter how well-constructed a found footage movie is. And I haven't seen that many of them. Maybe it's a mockumentary that's trying to convince you it's really a documentary. There's always some kind of tell, right? Something that betrays its artifice. It could be in the writing. It could be in a certain performance. Just something a little bit unnatural, something too crafted about it. Could be the shooting or the editing. Maybe something that kind of violates a rule or a principle that seems to be established earlier and then they break that. Whatever it is, you're aware of the technique that's being employed. And with Blair Witch, 20 years later anyway, you know for certain it's fake, but moment to moment your mind is constantly telling you this is real. I think it is because of the form and the different choices that they're making with the lighting and with the sound design. And that kind of brings us to the performances a little bit too. In the Raftery book, it's noted that people really had a backlash and hated the Heather character. Mm -hmm. And transfer that to Heather in real life because, of course, they thought she was playing herself. The quote is that she was so convincing people assumed she was just like her character. And a publicist that worked on the movie says in the book that Heather got a really bad rap in Hollywood because her work was actually never accepted as performance. One of the other actors, Michael Williams, said he would go to other auditions and they would say something about the Blair Witch and say, well, we know you weren't really acting in that movie. So they didn't really get any credit for what really are really good performances, because no matter how much stock you put in the supposed conditions under which this film was made and how the directors really did kind of leave them out there with the cameras and set up these different scenarios to torment them, and just the fact that they're in the pitch black in the middle of the woods, you're going to react to that. And it's not at all bizarre that even grown people would find that a little bit unnerving but the reality is they still are in character in all of those sure. moments They've and that doesn't that they into do. the performance and that doesn't take into account all the other scenes that aren't part of those kind of moments in the woods where they're legitimately terrified and that's transferring to the screen all the scenes in the motel the yeah, scenes in the so car good. that very natural banter that we see that whole notion of acting natural of course is an oxymoron anybody who's ever tried it will find how difficult it is there's nothing natural about it it's very difficult to behave like you're quote unquote a real person and that's never the case here i even love how heather when she's narrating the film, she's narrating her project, she's being shot mm -hmm. on the 16, she kind of adopts this almost wistful 60 minutes storyteller oh, totally. voice, yeah. right? It's this case where she seems to be trying to add a layer of seriousness yes. and gravitas to it, which is totally fake sounding, but in precisely the way a real person would do it in that moment. This is Burkittsville, formerly Blair. It is a small, quiet Maryland town much like a small, quiet town anywhere. 
No more than 20 families laid their roots here over 200 years ago, many of whom remain, either on this hill or in the town below. There are an unusually high number of children laid to rest here. To go back to my question, I guess, and my answer, I understand talking about the gimmick of the film from a marketing perspective. If you want to be dismissive of that, I get it. But the genius of the movie, in its purest sense, is that the filmmakers made a movie about a character who is determined to make a film, regardless of any obstacles, put in her way, and the actress playing that character had no choice but to continue making her film no matter what obstacles were put in her way. Both Heather Donahue, the student filmmaker, and Heather Donahue, the actress hired to pretend to be that student filmmaker, had exactly the same objectives. When she says, I think it's to Joshua's character at one point, just think about how good it will feel to get to the cemetery and get those shots and to be part of a really great film. That's either Heather in that scenario saying that to either Joshua. So the blurring of reality and fantasy is intrinsic to how this movie was made, which is ultimately why the promotion worked. The promotion isn't what made the movie work. It's the other way around. Yes, exactly. And I think that was one of the main directives that she in particular, but all three of them were given by the directors, by Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. I actually interviewed them in 99, really? which was part of the reason I, I knew the whole background story. And when I was talking to them about this method of, you know, communicating via notes, they would leave notes during, for them to find to basically give them the setup of what the next day's path should be, let's mm-hmm. say. And then they would actually be out in the woods scaring the crap out of them at night. But the one directive they said is keep filming. Right. Whatever happens, yeah. keep filming. And There's so no that's, movie if she doesn't. So that's what she did. They, they actually called it the phrase was interesting that they said was a method filmmaking approach. Yeah. And I think that that really – Describes it well, and that's why the movie works in terms of performance. And keep in mind that these were novices, too. You know, Donahue, Michael Williams, as you mentioned, Joshua Leonard, that they were able to pull this off so early on. There's real skill here outside of – it's kind of the same question that you're asking about the marketing. Like, okay, um, so maybe the marketing really pushed this movie forward. Well, maybe the filmmaking construct pushed them to performances that really they didn't have within them. It was only because, especially because, you know, none of them have really gone on to do huge things. Joshua Leonard, we've seen in a couple of pictures. I know they've all worked. A couple of very good pictures, like Hump Day. Well, and so let's let's talk about that. Leonard is really good in Hump Day. He's also good in the Vera Farmiga film, Higher Ground. Yes, he is. And you see here how he's genial, at the beginning, which allows him, when he starts to turn on her, to be even scarier than Mike. Like, Mike is a little bit more at a distance, and at the in, at the beginning, you might say, well, if someone's going to lose it here, it's going to be Mike. you got to watch him, which makes it all the more frightening when Josh is the one who really – there's that scene of him yeah. pushing the camera in her face. He goes to a dark demand, place. A really dark place and skirting that line, too, of, of – I, I think, you know – possible sexual violence. I think the movie plays with that, with the whole motel room setup. And one of Heather's challenges is negotiating the situation where she's in charge, but she's in this room with these two guys, neither of whom we get the sense. She doesn't know Mike at all. They just met him. Mm-hmm. And Josh, we get the sense as maybe a fellow student, but they're not exactly close. No. All of that establishes enough interpersonal um, friction and and there's just another dimension that they bring into the woods with them so that when things start going wrong, you remember all that. Uh, and it, uh, you know, it just makes it all the more um, unnerving. Yeah. And I think, Donahue, you know, that confession scene. I'm so sorry. 
my eyes. I'm scared to open them. Crucial to the marketing campaign. And obviously you can, you can understand why she's kind of sets up the whole thing there, but it is in the performance too. I'd love to know. I don't think I asked this because I don't remember the answer. If it was improvised, if those were lines she was given about closing her eyes and um, she's clearly responding to some sounds that they're actually Mm -hmm. making in the back. But I also like, and you spoke to this a little bit, her fearlessness in being willing to make Heather a domineering ass who just wouldn't quit. She did have some performance choices out there. You know, she could have kind of played that off a little bit, made us sympathize with Heather a little bit more. It's so much more interesting that she didn't. It is. Um, I think that gives that confession scene to the camera a lot of weight. Yeah, it's a really great scene and a great performance. And I want to talk about that turn in their personalities a little bit, which will also allow us to touch on a question that you raised or an idea that you raised that I'm not really ready to fully combat because I don't ever claim to really understand what makes something a particularly good genre film, definitely not a horror film. But the only thing I might take issue on with you with this film is whether or not it's truly a good horror film. And of course, evaluating how scary a movie is or isn't is always a bit of a tricky proposition. It only goes so far in really evaluating a film. But I think about Sam posting on Twitter a poll question that got about 300 responses where he asked basically that question. How scary is it? How good is it? He said, The Blood Rich Project is getting a 9 from 99 review on next week's show. It is good and scary. It's good but not scary. It's not good and not scary or some other variation on that that you wanted to chime in with. Other only got 9%. Not good and not scary, only 10%. Good, but not scary, 14%. The overwhelming winner here, good and scary, 67%. It sounds like that's probably where you would fall on this one. And before the rewatch is when I voted in that poll, and I said definitely it's good and scary. After the rewatch, I'd change my vote to good but not scary. I think I'd be in that second category. And I did. I took your recommendation, Josh. You told me I had to watch this late at night. Don't do it in the middle of the day with the windows open. I waited until Sunday night, late. Everyone's in bed except me and Sarah. I mean, I had to have Sarah with me for protection. I wasn't going to go. <laughs> of course. Full on courageous here. And I honestly fully expected to still be completely freaked out, not only at various points throughout the movie, but especially at the end. That Mm. infamous shot of Michael in the corner. Yeah. Just thinking about it before watching the movie unnerved me like it did 20 years ago. And I got to be honest, now it didn't. And that could be for a whole host of reasons, including that particular shot has become so infamous that maybe some of that mystery surrounding it has been lost a little bit. But it's in line with my overall experience this time with the whole movie. Never really fully spooked, never really afraid. I felt anxiety. And this is where the personalities come in. Yeah. I felt the anxiety of someone who was putting himself in their shoes. And this sets up something that I really appreciated about the movie and also was maybe a little bit disappointed in on this viewing. The thought of being lost in the woods, of being lost anywhere, no sense at all of how to get out, being like Heather is, responsible for other people in a situation like this, your bad choices leading to this point, knowing that any further bad choices you make 
are going to hurt not just you, but other people that you're going to be responsible for what happens to them. That's basically what her confession to the camera is saying. She's apologizing. Heather's obsession, we've touched on this, the consequences of fixating on something you want or feel like you need to do. It did occur to me watching it this time that it's almost more of a psychological experiment we're watching unfold than a scary movie because you're watching people very realistically reckon with the reality of their mortality. In real time, almost, you're watching people recognize that they're not going to get out of here. And so then how they behave individually, how they behave towards each other, all the anger and blame and remorse, those those personality shifts over the course of the movie become what the movie is really about. And there's horror, there's relatable horror in watching all of that, but that's a very different type of horror than what sent me running up to my parents' bedroom when I was a little kid. And honestly, I thought there would be more of that. My recollection of the movie was that there was more of that. And that's where the disappointment comes in just a little bit. I was surprised at how little real mythologizing the movie does, how much it invests in the Blair Witch as a figure and that whole story. The interviews with the three or four locals basically provide all the info we need, all the info we get. And then once they get into the woods... What those people said more or less transpires exactly. And each night, the terror is just a little bit more amplified. They wake up the stick figures and the rock formations around them. And it all, of course, culminates at the house. But for me on this viewing, and I'm curious if you felt this way or not, there was really no sense of discovery for them or then us, of course, as far as what may be happening kind of supernaturally. It's just this steady momentum towards death. And without that larger mythology... I was oh, never really no, spooked by no. it. You wanted more mythology? A little this bit. Is, oh, a this little is bit. one of the brilliant things about this movie. I appreciate that they, that they stripped it down. Like I said, they don't dig into it's that. It's if you realize that the movie really isn't interested in any of that stuff. No. And appreciate it, as I just said, as more of an experiment and more about their psychology than about the horror. Yeah. But, but I would have been more scared, is all I'm saying, if I felt like they had found a way to really make me terrified about what that next discovery was going to mean. Instead, it's just... Oh, they're in deep trouble. Well, you can't for one thing, you can't make someone have a new discovery on a second watch. I mean, it's just it's all already been there. I know, but it's for not you. the characters themselves discovering. I didn't remember anything about the story I and how how it unfolds. What you're asking for is the Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2, which is much more mythology. I am not. And I've horror, seen that. And it's, it's, it's terrible. Terrible. But I think it's there might ingenious. be a middle ground there, Josh. <laughs> I think it's ingenious how here's what's ingenious about it. There is mythology at the beginning with these legends and these myths, but they don't all match up. They're very, you know, there's the old guy there's at some one variations. point. Then there's the fisherman they meet, and that's the coffin rock legend. All of this is, it's loosely tied to the Blair Witch, but not, there's not one story. It's not like the Headless Horseman. We know what this story is, who the ghost is, and how it works. Let's go into the woods and look for the Headless Horseman. It's the Blair Witch, but then there's this other guy who kidnapped these kids and walked into town and, and confessed. Mm -hmm. Then there's the figure that the fisherman sees. Then there's whatever happens at Coffin Rock. And here's the ingenious part. Rather than explain that when they get into the woods, we get little hints. So we see the this is the thing that sends shivers down my spine no matter how many times I watch it when we get to the house, the handprints of the little kids. Mm. No, a, I agree. A production design yes. detail like yes. that is all that the mythology. If they, if they want to explain whose handprints those are, what happened no. to the kids. We agree like, on that. Okay, okay. No, more hints, less explanations is okay, what ultimately I'd be after. Okay. Yeah. Well, let, let but, me back but Can up. I say real quick, yes. before we go off this notion of how scary it was, yeah, yeah. that is all my conscious 
rational self-talking. You're also protecting yourself. I might be. You are. <laughs> My unconscious self has to point out to the world that the night I fell asleep right after seeing this movie felt pretty good. Okay. really didn't think it was scary, was sure I wasn't going to be kept up with any bad dreams or anything. And I was startled by a noise around 3 a.m. So startled, and this never happens to me, I jumped out of bed, terrified. I was sure, Josh, that someone had just played a note on our piano down in the living room. Just a single note sent me jumping out of bed. That, of course, woke Sarah up. She asked me what was going on. I told her what was going on, that someone clearly is downstairs playing a note on our piano. She said I was crazy. We waited for it to happen again. About 15 seconds later, the noise happens again. You're kidding me. It's our dog, Ellie, snoring on the floor. So, and she sounds like a piano? She's at the foot of our bed. <laughs> and her snore was so deep and low and slow. In that moment, I was absolutely one of the Blair Witch trio hearing a strange sound yes. and just vaulting out of the tent. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and not only that. No, that, that's a perfect example. You're imagining yes, something that exactly. clearly wasn't that's there it. based on another sound, based that on your lack of with knowledge. Me, my lack of knowledge, yes. having to imagine yeah. what was happening and the horror of it. But the movie's not scary for you, Adam, though. That's what clearly I'm saying. Clearly, it's not scary. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, so let's back up to, you're right. Whether or not a movie scares you is a poor um, way to measure a horror film because it's so personal. I think it's useful information. It's fun to talk about. Mm -hmm. It's not the bottom line. Uh, and now we're even a more maddening question is what defines a horror film? I, I hate having that argument. Let's set a baseline and just say if it's intrinsically about some sort of fear, maybe it qualifies as a, as a horror film in some way. And maybe you have to add the supernatural. You have to add whatever other rules you put on top of that. And the reason I think Blair Witch Project is perhaps the ultimate horror film. I'm, I'm tempted every time I watch it again. I'm tempted to move it past. Right now, I have Nightmare on Elm Street. Another we did a Sacred Cow review of that as my number one horror mm -hmm. film. A legit disappointing film for of me. all time. Yeah, let's not revisit that. I'm tempted to move Blair Witch past it, and and, and here's why: because that's essentially ask yourself. What is a horror movie? What fear is it about? Everyone's about specific fear, mostly. Maybe Nightmare is about dreams and our inability to control what happens in dreams. Other ones are about monsters, the, the obvious ones. But there are horror films about sexuality, right? There are horror films about parenthood. There are horror films about suburbia. Blair Witch is about the terrifying, debilitating fear of fear itself. It's so elemental. It's all about what makes us afraid, Not and then not even a specific what that is, but the sheer experience of being afraid, mm -hmm. how it alters our brains, how it alters our perceptions. We lose control of ourselves when fear takes over. And so that's why I have it as an ultimate horror film is because it's just it's, it zeroes in so much on that central thing that is at the heart of the entire genre. And, and it you know, for me, it still has more specific fears too. basically being in the woods lost like you're talking about. Yeah, I can. I think about when I watched this movie when I was a kid, we, you know, had forest preserves outside in the Chicago suburbs. There are a lot of forest preserves and you'd go running in them, you know, with your friends and just play around all day. Whenever you came across an area where someone else had been before 
and they left remnants of that. And this isn't just like a park. Like you're, you know, a good five, ten minutes into the woods. You just kind of stand there, and there's something eerie about being in a far-off place that, that someone had done something in, and you're not sure what. It's, it's like there's ghosts mm-hmm. in some way. And the way this movie capitalizes on that specific fear, when they come across some of those deep-in-the-woods sites with all— that's why the stick formations work. It's not that they're creepy in and of themselves. I mean, if you saw them in a gift shop, you might say, oh, that, that's kind of cool. How'd you make that? But the fact that they're that deep-in-the-woods lost— and someone took the time there to make those. For it's sure. all about the location. So, I th- yeah, I think Blair Witch can be very specific in its fears, but it has that elemental level, too. Yeah, I like your argument. And again, not equipped to really counter it. But we're kind of saying the same thing semantically because this whole notion of the movie ultimately being about fear, the fear of fear, is what I'm saying in terms of it really being that psychological experiment. Yeah. It's more about what happens when you introduce that concept. How do you see behavior shift but the, the the triggers, the maybe triggers, are that's not. it. Those in and of themselves are never made to be scary. And that maybe is what separates it for me from a traditional horror movie, whether or not that is how we want to define these movies. I've mentioned Heather's obsession and we've talked about kind of her her determination to keep filming here and to make sure this project completes. And it's something that drives the other people in the film, other people in her crew crazy. I'm guessing it's also something that drove a lot of audiences crazy. They were probably thinking the exact same thing as her crew members, which is put the camera down, you idiot. Of course, as we've said, you don't have a movie if she does that. But I was very aware on this viewing that it's 1999. The internet, right? You touched on it. It's still in its relative infancy. Nobody's carrying around iPhones. They're not posting to Twitter or Instagram. We are, of course, now all attached to our devices and living through our devices almost moment to moment. And here, amidst all this terror and these characters having this dawning realization that they just might die out here, her compulsion to film really is more than just an obsession with making the movie or making a great piece of art, as she hopes it really does provide a shield. It's a complete way for her to disconnect. I think the movie works on that level too. As long as she's filming, then everything that's happening must be part of a movie, which means it's Mm. not real, right? Which gets back to this whole blurring that's inherent in the movie anyway between fantasy and reality. I did hate the fact that this was all very clear to me. And I suppose it was Joshua Leonard who decided to underline it for us. But again, if it was something he felt like he naturally had to express in the moment, I'll buy it. There is that point in the film where he says to her, I see why you like this camera yeah, so much, yeah, right? It's not, it's not reality. This. He directly accuses her of it. But even if you didn't have that line in the movie, I think that's one of the underlying themes of the film. And it's fascinating to think about it 20 years ago that, it's almost a precursor in some ways. As long as she's got that that camera up to her face or that device up to her face, then she can somehow stand back from the reality, no matter how terrifying it is. Well, you talked about, we mentioned at least, uh, Book of Shadows, the sequel. I should point out, in terms of camera phones and more modern technology, 2016's Blair Witch, it's nowhere near this. But it is it is worth seeing, and it's interesting because they... They pretty much asked that question, what if this happened, but we did have not only camera phones, but drones and footage from a drone? How would that come into play? And it's interesting on those terms to think about that. Well, let me ask you this. So say they get out of the woods. This speaks to Heather's drive. Um, And again, why she's such a great character. They get out of the woods. Which one of those three is going to make it as a filmmaker? 
you know it's Heather. Of course. Of course it's Heather. Yeah. And I think that's why as as poor decisions as she's making, as annoying as she is, I, I never found this as a completely irredeemable portrait. Because for me, at least, there's always a part that is like, yeah, she's, you know, she messed up the map. She made these other decisions. But I kind of admire her drive. Yeah, totally. I kind of admire her focus. And she's going to make something. Well, she doesn't make something out no, of it. But no. She comes close. Well, I guess what we ultimately are seeing, we have her to thank for it. And I did appreciate you mentioned that it may be at least hinted at the sexual politics of this movie. And that was something I definitely don't remember considering at all back in 99. But on this viewing, couldn't escape. And I was going to say I appreciate that. I don't think the movie is explicitly sexist, nor do I think they're trying to express explicit sexism on the part of the two men in the film. But it is interesting that they don't offer a scenario where Heather gets lost because something supernatural is happening. It's definitely about choices she makes, right? It could be anything. Maybe maybe they get out there and because of the Blair Witch, the compass doesn't work or something weird happens to the map that isn't her fault at all. They kind of introduce that later with yeah. Michael Interesting to soften that, a little bit. Yeah. But ultimately, it's her fault. And that sets up the confession later. That's why she feels the need to have that confession. So either the filmmakers do want her to be able to take that blame and have that guilt or they want to make it completely about her determination and her drive. But either way, like I said, they make it her fault. And you can't help but think about a classic sexist joke about women in a map and following them. And I say that as someone who literally only gets around because my wife is sitting next to me, have no sense of direction whatsoever. But that joke is kind of what's played out over the course of this movie that she can't direct them to where she needs to go. And as I said, they don't at any point that I recall say anything to her that makes it seem as though they wouldn't react the same way to a male director who got them similarly lost. But I do wonder if audiences would have reacted as harshly to a male Heather figure oh, that's in this a, moment. Yeah, that's or whether a really or not good they question. condemn her in some different way just because of gender expectations and her not living up to some ridiculous ideal. Very possible. I, I think it was uh, an ingenious stroke to put her in charge just to have that in the air. I by no means think the movie is making any sort of statement by doing that, but it absolutely adds a different dynamic poses power questions. Mm -hmm. And I, what I like about the film is that it does play with it lightly. It just lets it be in the mix. It's almost as if, if Myrick and Sanchez are, this is a cauldron, you know, that they're, they're just going to create this cauldron and throw all sorts of stuff into it. Uh, some of it's going to be formal. Some of it's going to be narrative plot. It's going to be technical, what equipment they give them. And one of the things is just it's going to be two guys mm -hmm. who are following the instructions of a woman. I think it makes it infinitely more interesting. And I would say it could be an issue if she was only defined by her mistakes. Right. But I think we've already discussed the many ways she's a far more interesting character than that. So I, I, I don't think it'd be fair to accuse the movie of, of taking any vantage point in that way. Any other little tidbits about the film you want to fit in? I Josh? mean, I just I just always like to note, even though in the clip we played at the very top, we already did that brilliant moment of the toddler starting to cry. That was what I wanted to say. In the mom's Covering arms. her mom's mouth. Oh my gosh. When I do How remember- How perfect is that? I mean, do you think that was just serendipitous? I do. 
that, see, that's where you just know the movie is like blessed or or cursed as that's the case exactly may be. Right. When I first watched this film, that was the first time in the movie. I mean, I was like, this is interesting. Okay, this is, you know, let's see where this is going to go. When that happened, that was the first chill down the spine and I was hooked. Because <laughs> yeah. if, if that was going to happen in this safe little town and I'm going to feel that way, oh boy, right. wait till we get into the woods. No, I mean, come on. You've tried to control a toddler's behavior before. It's impossible. And that totally read to me like a moment I've experienced as a parent where you're talking to someone and your kid is ready to go right now and doesn't want you to keep talking. And they will do whatever they have to do to get you to shut up. Now, in the context, that element is there. But here in this film, as she's about to tell you some spooky myth about these haunted woods, it does give you the double meaning, the double side of that, which is the kid saying, don't you dare speak this. Absolutely. Right? And so I love that moment. That was definitely one I wanted to bring up. And I did notice this time the question that really had to be nagging everyone after they saw this movie originally, which is how could they ever have had enough battery life in their cameras? (laughs) And it turns out the movie does try to account for it. I almost wish they didn't, but there's a line very early in the film, maybe about 10 minutes in, where they're embarking on the trip and someone... I think it's Heather says something to Joshua, like, are we all juiced up? And he's like, oh, yeah, we got so much juice. We wouldn't know what to do with it. Or he says something okay. like that to basically say, cover it. oh, yeah, we're, we're covered here, which, of course, if you were really breaking it down, no chance those cameras stay alive. No, I don't think so. Jump back real quickly when you were talking about the mistakes that she made. There is that point where... If you want to think about it this way, the witch does get involved where they make a circle and come back to the same log. Yes. That is not a choice any of them made. And so the question then could be- You are correct. What that opens up is the possibility, from what we know of Heather, it's very likely that she was stubborn, took a wrong turn and didn't want to admit it. And that's why everything started to go poorly. Or she's under some sort of spell. No, I don't see it as some sort of spell. In some ways- It's off her shoulders because you're right. There is something else at play there. But what I was thinking the whole time and what I think one of the other characters verbalizes is if she had just followed the map as she was supposed to or if they had just done everything according to plan, then they never would have been in the woods that extra day anyway. Yes. A character does bring that up. It's like we just should have been at the car anyway and we wouldn't be going around in this loop. But you're right. At some point, other forces take hold here and – we do get the fact that it wasn't her who lost the map. Yeah. Maybe they could have eventually, maybe they could have gotten out, though I think the implication is they were probably not the second they walked in. The Blair Witch Project is available on demand on most platforms, and there's still plenty of vacancies in campgrounds throughout the Burkittsville, Maryland area if you're looking for a little bit of outdoor time before the end of the summer. If you have seen the movie recently, we would love to hear your thoughts. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. A quick plug, and we'll link to this in our show notes. I haven't even had a chance to go through it fully yet, but the AV Club, our friends over there, did just today, as we're recording this, post their 20 best films of 1999. So a great companion to the series. Pretty sure all nine films that we're talking about as part of our 9 from 99 series are on the list, and The Blair Witch Project comes in at number 9. Seems like that would be a little bit low for you, That's Josh, okay. That's considering right. where you like it. It would be a little bit high for me. I did a very loose ranking. I've got it more like 17, 18. But that speaks to how good 1999 is. It was a good year. 
No witches in 1930s The Blue Angel, but there are a few clowns. Our Marlena Dietrich, Joseph von Sternberg marathon kicks off next. Plus, we'll have results for the latest film spotting poll, asking which Phase 4 MCU film you're anticipating the most. Stay with us. Falling in love again Never wanted to What am I I can't help it Love's always been my game Play it how I may I was made that way I can't help it Men cluster to Are you going to see the concert tonight? Yes. Are you going to hear it? Okay, you hear and see it, and uh, it's going to happen fast, and you're not going to get it all, and you might even hear the wrong words, you know? And then afterwards, see, I, okay, I won't be able to talk to you afterwards. i got nothing to say about these things I write. I mean, I just write them. I don't to say anything about them. That's from Don't Look Back, the 1967 Bob Dylan documentary from legendary doc director D.A. Pennebaker. He died last week at the age of 94. Back in 2013, he was the recipient of an honorary lifetime Oscar. We've covered Penny Baker a little bit on this show. Don't Look Back was part of a very early film spotting marathon for Sam and myself, a documentaries marathon, a blind spot for us then. I've managed to fit in a few other Penny Baker films over the years, including in preparation for a class I taught at the University of Chicago's Graham School a few years back on direct cinema or cinema verite. He was definitely a pioneer of that format and primary back in 1960 is a fascinating watch it covers the wisconsin primary election between kennedy and hubert humphrey of course don't look back is a classic doc that everyone needs to see he also made monterey pop in 68 the war room another famous one from 1993 his single oscar nominated documentary that's the one that kind of introduced us to george stephanopoulos and james carville and took us inside the campaign of bill clinton that's definitely one to see i would also recommend and you can find it on youtube for free i know this because my broadway obsessed daughter sophie and i watched it just a few months ago the original cast album steven sondheim's company that documentary from 1970 which the documentary now guys recently did a perfect spoof of called co-op i highly recommend both of those, as well as the other titles I mentioned, if you're not familiar with Penny Baker's work, just a giant passing away at 94. Another passing we wanted to note, Adam, one especially pertinent to film culture here in Chicago was the passing of Milo Stalik from Facets. He died earlier this summer in July, born in Czechoslovakia, but founded Facets here in Chicago in 1975, started it by screening just international films and independent films in a Lutheran church here in the city, and then went on by 77 um, to find a permanent home on Fullerton Avenue. The nonprofit went on to get into video distribution, thousands of really hard-to-find titles. This was, you know, way before Netflix or anything like that. You could get titles for sale and rental through the mail, through facets, and guess, for a time, Adam, who was part in the basement down there of that mail group shipping out those titles. You? Yeah. No kidding? Yeah, I worked there for a little bit. I didn't know Milos closely, but obviously in passing, you know, a word or two, this was after I 
graduated from college, thought that I might be able to string together a freelance critic career and for the regular paycheck, went to Facets and went down in the basement huh. and shipped out titles. And I got access to all the great catalogs. So the the film culture that he created, that he built, I personally benefited from. Just how much I learned just from reading the backs of those. I bet. VHS boxes, you know, uh, it, it was a really a gift that um, that he was to the entire Chicago film community. Yeah, listeners might think we would be more personally familiar with him than we are as we are both broadcasts here on WBEZ, but I never got to meet him either, but definitely wanted to acknowledge him because just like you had a profound impact on me as a cinephile. I remember coming to Chicago going to film school in the late 90s, being only about a 15-minute walk or so from Facets. And a lot of those early films that were really groundbreaking for me and influential for me, I've talked about Hal Hartley's Trust a bunch. I've talked on the show over the years a little bit about Michelangelo Antonioni and his Alienation trilogy. The only way I see those movies is by going to Facets. They simply weren't available anywhere else. And at the time, there wasn't that mail-order component to facets so you just had to go and you had to rent them now later when we were starting film spotting sam and myself and we were embarking on these marathons a lot of times we were trying to watch films that were blind spots that were harder to get more obscure titles and you could only get them couldn't get them from netflix but you could get them from facets so just a key part of many of our marathons over the years and you mentioned sharing the airwaves milo stalik of course would share his film views on wbz's worldview regularly so heard him on the air all the time our friend michael phillips visited with stalik just days before he passed away it's a really nice article that we will link to in our show notes if anybody wants more information next week on our show we are going to review jennifer kent's the Nightingale, Kent, the director of 2014's The Babadook. So we're sticking with horror here back-to-back weeks. The Nightingale had its premiere back in September at the Venice Film Festival, played Sundance earlier this year. It also played here in town. We didn't catch it, unfortunately, at the Chicago Critics Film Fest back in May. It's about a young Irish convict. Her name's Claire. It's set in 1825. She follows a British officer through the Tasmanian wilderness set on revenge for a violent act he committed against her family. Monica Castillo over at The Wrap gave it a very positive review, saying it's complicated and divisive, a movie that viewers might find difficult to love but slow to forget. Sam shared with me another bit from Monica's review in our Slack channel that I kind of wish he hadn't. Yeah, I was going to say, just stop where you are. Well, I'm just going to say it just made me dread the film, seeing it even more, and I say that word dread because anytime I know I'm going to watch something that's going to be pretty heavy emotionally, no matter how excited I am to see it or to see what a certain filmmaker will do, you just know you're in for something that's going to be potentially overwhelming. And what Sam shared with me makes me think this is going to be especially intense. Well, the Babadook, you know, was not exactly an easy go, so I would expect no less. And something about the historical period setting Yeah, it makes it seem like it could be another level of intensity. Yeah, emotionally intense dread. Get excited for next week's Film Spotting. We're talking about The Nightingale. We do occasionally here on Film Spotting have giveaways, usually advanced screening or run of engagement passes. You can find those contests over at filmspotting.net slash events. This week, we've got 10 digital passes to give away to Casey Affleck's new film, Light of My Life. This I had not 
even heard of before. But before it sounds, we got the email, I hadn't either. Yeah, it sounds pretty fascinating. Set in a post-apocalyptic world, a father played by Affleck fights to protect his daughter after a deadly virus wipes out nearly all the female population. So Affleck in this also he wrote and directed this. It is now available via digital and on demand. If you want to watch it for free, you can get one of these 10 digital passes. This is first come, first serve. So get on this quickly by emailing feedback at filmspotting.net with the subject line, Light of My Life. Include your name and mailing address in the body of the email because though these are digital passes, they're going to be sent through old-fashioned mail. Indeed. Okay. Now, this will be very confusing because I'll see that subject line and think you're just sending me a message, Josh. You get a lot of these, don't you? Well, from you. Light of my life. (laughs) Yeah. More info again at filmspotting.net slash events. But all you got to do to enter, send that in the subject line. And if you're one of the first 10, you will get that free digital pass. We also wanted to plug our sister show, The Great Podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's a man-up double feature pairing the new black comedy from director Riley Stearns, The Art of Self-Defense, with David Fincher's Fight Club. You've heard me recommend The Art of Self-Defense, currently out in limited release. You can hear my interview with Riley Stearns in our feed or over at filmspotting.net. Really fun conversation with him, and The Art of Self-Defense is definitely a golden brick contender this year. Also in the Film Spotting feed, if you really want to do your homework, our recent 9 from 99 Sacred Cow review of Fight Club. Yes. A lot of resources there. Especially fun to listen to the Next Picture Show group after we had just dug into Fight Club, the different directions they went and the things they pulled hmm. out of it. I'm going to have to hold off on that other episode about the art of self-defense till I catch up with it, though. Yeah, and also, I'll struggle with their next episode. We wanted to plug their new pairing will be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Hal Ashby Shampoo. Shampoo, a blind spot of mine. One of the reasons why we've considered a Hal Ashby marathon here on Film Spotting. It just might happen at some point. Last week on the show, we played Massacre Theater. That's where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, we're going to give you just a little taste of last week's massacre. Seven wives times seven, 49. With seven cats, seven times 49 is 343, right? You asking me or telling me? I'm telling you, 343 times seven is... In case you're still confused, even after getting that little clip, here is a clue from Rob McGregor. He said, people generally hold this movie in high regard. Some mouth-breathing Philistines will even say it's the best in the series. My guess is that these same people haven't watched it since the 90s when we were young and foolish. The best part about this is right after Rob sent this email, the next two Massacre Theater entries that came in said this movie was the best in the series. Can I offer another clue? I'll give you Rob's email if you want to send him any hate mail. (laughs) That's insanity. This opinion. It is insanity. It's insanity. I agree. That's a clue. And this movie isn't bad. I think on our last show, I may have joked that it was a bit of a train wreck. It really isn't. It's okay, but it's definitely not as good as the first film in this series. No. That's what I'm getting at. Okay. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is this coming Monday, the 12th. Hello, the goddess of death has invaded Asgard. If hell is back, then Asgard's already lost. I'm going to stop her. Alone? Nope. I'm putting together a team. It's me, you, and the big guy. No, no team, only Hulk. It's me and you. I think it's only you. Listen. Time for some poll results. That was Chris Hemsworth, Tessa Thompson, and Mark Ruffalo's Hulk in Thor Ragnarok. A couple weeks back, we asked you, what Marvel Phase 4 film project are you most excited about? 
Among the options is Taika Waititi's follow-up to Ragnarok, next year's Thor, Love and Thunder. Your options, Black Widow, Scarlett Johansson, of course, directed by Kate Shortland, or The Eternals, Angelina Jolie, Kumail Nanjiani in that, directed by Chloe Zhao, who gave us one of the best films of last year, The Writer. Your third choice, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, starring Aquafina and Tony Leung, directed by Destin Daniel Cretton, who made Short Term 12. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, Benedict Cumberbatch, of course, along with Elizabeth Olsen, Scott Derrickson back as director of that. The aforementioned Thor, Love and Thunder, and Blade, which Sam kind of cheated here. It's officially Phase 5, we think, but we're including it because... Mahershala Ali has been named as the star, and we love him, as do, I think, most of our listeners. So how did this one come out? Probably good we included Blade because it fared pretty well. Starting at the bottom, though, here is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which received 7% of the vote. Black Widow, maybe a little bit of a surprise, only 9% here in second to last place. Blade comes next with 14%. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness received 15%. The Eternals, 16%. But, yep, a big jump. To the winner, Thor, Love and Thunder, 39% of the vote. We heard from Cormac Rioran, and I'm sorry, Cormac, for how I butchered your last name. Wow, Phase 4 actually looks pretty exciting. I'm happy to see why TT Return as Thor 3 remains my personal favorite Marvel picture. And between my love for the writer, Mahershala Ali's career, and the prospect of a real horror flick in the MCU with Doctor Strange 2, I think I'll at least be enjoying this new wave of the MCU at least in concept. We also heard from Robert Lewis. Being a comic nerd, I mean a collector, Thor Love and Thunder is the one I am looking forward to the most. That's based on how much I enjoyed the Thor comic series, which began in 2014, written by Jason Aaron, with art by Russell Dowderman. Here we have Thor Odinson, the original Thor, now unable to lift the hammer Mjolnir. Without getting too deep into the story, Dr. Jane Foster is worthy enough to lift the hammer and becomes the new Thor. Yes, there were a lot of fanboys upset and trolling Marvel and anyone associated with the title, but this was a well-written storyline, and this is not really a new idea. What if number 10, which came out in August of 1978, asked and answered the question, what if Jane Foster had found the Hammer of Thor? Spoiler alert, another storyline, also written with Jason Aaron as part of that team, now has Jane Foster as the Valkyrie. The series Valkyrie, Jane Foster, will be out later this year. Okay, Reg Roberts, a little more pithy. It's Thor, for two reasons, Taika Waititi. Fair enough. Dylan Dom from Lincoln, Nebraska, said literally all you had to say about the Eternals, which I know nothing about, is that Chloe Zhao is directing. Can't wait to see what she does. Mitchell Beaupre wrote in the combo of Destin Daniel Cretton, Tony freaking Leung, and some serious Asian representation in superhero movies make Shang-Chi a close second, but it's got to be the Eternals for me. It's really exciting that Marvel is finally making some real impactful pushes for representation in these flicks and the industry at large. Such a diverse cast, the first deaf superhero on screen, played by an actual deaf actress, and a female Asian-American director to boot. Nice to see them making the push for female directors in movies beyond exclusively ones with female leads. It's taken them 10 years to start having the kind of representation that they should have had from the beginning, but better late than never, and The Eternals is the kind of wild and weird property that they never Never could have gotten onto the screen 10 years ago. Plus, it's got Kumail Nanjiani and Brian Tyree Henry. One more comment here from James Fahey. I would never have expected to say this, but Blade is my most anticipated MCU film. This is for one reason alone, Mahershala Ali, the best actor of our generation, taking on a seminal MCU role has me excited beyond belief. Yeah, I'm there with you, though. It's not two reasons, Mahershala Ali. James can do math. We're just going one. 
Okay. Our new poll question, and it is time for a patented, I mean, this really should be trademarked at this point, deeply flawed poll question (laughs) from producer Sam. I'm glad he's willing to accept the blame. Totally. Who is the decade-defining actress of the 2010s? Oh, this is going to cause problems. Inspired by all of the best of the decade writing being done over at IndieWire, we will provide a link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net. But also inspired by our planned review, right now a planned review, of Richard Linklater's Where'd You Go, Bernadette? It opens wide on August 16th. It stars Kate Blanchett, certainly one of our very best actresses ever, regardless of decade. According to IndieWire, she gave the second best performance this decade of the 2010s, the title role in Todd Haynes' Carol. But is Blanchett the decade-defining actress of the 2010s? Here's Sam's criteria that filled up our Slack channel over the weekend. Yeah, I couldn't keep up with this. But thankfully, I subscribed to the Film Spotty newsletter, Adam. So I got a hint of all of this yes. already. This week, Sam laid this out. Here's his criteria. One, sustained commercial and critical success throughout the decade. Okay. Two, the 2010s is the first decade of that sustained commercial and critical success. So consider Kate Blanchett, 2010s, not the first decade of her success, really. So she has been deemed unqualified. Yeah, how about that? Can't vote for her. (laughs) So who does that leave us? Well, Sam put in Amy Adams. She's got four Oscar nominations in this decade. Arrival, probably her big starring vehicle. She's been in Man of Steel and the Justice League movies. Also been in American Hustle and The Master. Now, some people might point out that Adams has two other Oscar nominations back in the 2000s for Junebug and Doubt. Plus... There was the commercial success of Enchanted, so we're already off on a wrong path here. Deeply flawed. Remember that. Or you've got Jessica Chastain, two Oscar noms this decade, Zero Dark Thirty, probably her big starring vehicle, also in The Martian, Interstellar, Tree of Life, Take Shelter, and The Help. No one outside of NYC theater circles, my notes tell me, had heard of Chastain before 2010, so she's all good. There's no complaints about whether or not she fits into this deeply flawed poll question. Okay. Jennifer Lawrence, let's see. Four Oscar nominations this decade. She won for Silver Linings Playbook. She's also been, of course, in The Hunger Games and in the X-Men franchise. No one had heard of her before 2010's Winter's Bone. So I think that, you know, that really meets the criteria and probably, spoiler, going to get my vote. Okay. Scarlett Johansson also in contention. No Oscar nominations ever. Not even for Under the Skin. Key roles, of course, in the Avengers movies and the lead in Luke Besson's Lucy. Memorable voice work in Her and Isle of Dogs. But she's been acting since she was a kid in the 90s and had some notable roles in the 2000s, Lost in Translation, and The Prestige. So she's getting the flawed tag, but we're including her. Yeah, flawed. I don't hold the kid stuff against her necessarily, but Lost in Translation, that's, yeah, that was major. Her breakout, right? Yep. How about Lupita Nyong'o? More recent breakout. She does have one Oscar nomination and a win for 12 Years a Slave. Perhaps she'll get another one. I really hope at least a nomination next year for this year's Us. She has been in this latest round of Star Wars sequels. Of course, she was also in Black Panther. She didn't even graduate from Yale Drama School until 2012. So (laughs) she is clearly in. Kristen Stewart also in the poll. No Oscar noms, but notable performances in The Clouds of Sils Maria, Personal Shopper, Certain Women, among others, started the decade as the star of the Twilight movies, three of the four of which came out this decade. Though she, like Scarlett, has been acting since she was a kid and was in some notable movies last decade. So maybe debatable on 
the flawed front may be debatable in terms of whether or not you accept that she is truly a great actress. But hell, we devoted an entire top five to her best moments. So yeah, I think we. I say that we're including her for sure. Yes, include her. Emma Stone. Do we include Emma Stone? Three Oscar nominations this decade. One one for La La Land. Co-star of the pretend they never happened. Amazing Spider-Man films. Also, she had these hits: The Help, Crazy Stupid Love, and Easy A. No lead roles, really, until the 2010s. Okay. So I think Emma is good. Absolutely qualifies. It's a very tough one. And you mentioned J-Law is probably getting your vote. Is that because of your deep appreciation for Winter's Bone, mainly? Yeah, for me, it's at some point you just got to weigh the talent, too, and who you're most excited to see on the screen. I know some of these fit the criteria better than others. So it's not just that she's a perfect fit. I also like the balance of the work that she's done from something very small like Winter's Bone to something big like The Hunger Games. And I think her performances there are a reason that those movies, one of the reasons, are as good as I think they are. And she can just do, I think, just about anything. Hmm. So the range is there. She's my vote. I think I'm going other. And I don't really have the foundation, meaning I haven't looked through every film she's made and which ones came out in which years to see whether or not this is a flawed choice or not. But just in terms of who I think of as an actress, I want to see on screen more than any other actress. It's other. It's Michelle Williams. Mm. She's my favorite actress going right now. And unfortunately, she did fall into the other category. So, yeah, this poll question is deeply, deeply flawed. Sam, how dare you? Some other ones that he felt, though had the critical and award success like Williams, but maybe not quite the commercial or wide cultural impact to match the others. Carrie Mulligan, Viola Davis, Rooney Mara, Octavia Spencer, Saoirse Ronan, Elizabeth Moss, and Greta Gerwig. So if any of those strike your fancy, you could vote other or write in someone else. People, along with Blanchett, who might have been eligible in the 2000s, a better fit there. Sam has Charlize Theron and Natalie Portman. I love this one. Tilda Swinton, she's probably not human. Definitely not human. So you can't count her. No. (laughs) In early voting, Josh's choice, Jennifer Lawrence, has a pretty healthy lead over Amy Adams, but it is early. Emma Stone and Jessica Chastain with respectable numbers. We would love to hear your thoughts on this poll. We'd love to get your votes. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. I will tease that I'm pretty sure we're going to take all the work Sam has done on this poll question and use it as the foundation, as flawed as it is, use it as the foundation for a top five or ten at some point in the near future. Thinking about maybe early next year as we're looking back on this decade mm-hmm. and we share maybe our top 20 films of the decade, just as Film Spotting did for the past decade. But maybe we also share our favorite performances or go ahead and do a more traditional split, the top five or ten actresses of the decade, top five or 10 actors of the decade. So we're going to get to all of this in a lot more detail, I think, at some point down the road. You can look forward to that. And again, vote now at filmspotting.net. Well, how did you like my bedroom? Sie sind also die Künstlerin Lola Lola. Sorry, but you'll have to talk my language. What? You are the actress Lola Lola? Police official, huh? Was allowed to sich. My, my name is uh, Emanuel Rath, professor of the local school. And you ought to know enough to take off your hat. 
Marlena Dietrich and Emil Jannings in 1930s The Blue Angel, directed by Joseph von Sternberg. It's the first film in our Dietrich von Sternberg marathon and the first collaboration between the iconic actress and director. Of course, you heard those words in English, which tells you we pulled the clip from the English language version of The Blue Angel. It was not dubbed, but shot simultaneously with the German version, though the German version is definitely longer, 10 to 15 minutes, and is also what's available on Amazon Prime, which is, I think, how we both watch the movie. Indeed. The Blue Angel is the story of a strict and scolding professor, played by Jannings, who becomes obsessed with Dietrich's nightclub singer, Lola Lola. Because this is a film spotting marathon, we, of course, have to get the conversation started with the help of our friend, the professor, Nathaniel Myers, in South Bend, Indiana. Hello, Adam and Josh. The impetus of every film spotting marathon is, I know, to remedy a filmic blind spot. But I suspect I'm not alone among your listeners in feeling that between Joseph von Sternberg and Marlena Dietrich, one name and face is considerably more recognizable than the other. Even as von Sternberg himself was supposedly always very happy to remind people that he played no small part in engineering Dietrich's mystique, nevertheless it's Dietrich herself who the American Film Institute once counted among the top 10 greatest stars that lingers most in our cultural memory. I therefore went into this week's film, 1930's The Blue Angel, excited to get a chance to see Dietrich in action, but also curious to see the work of the director who, at least ostensibly, made her a star. To that end, while watching the film, Dietrich's appeal as an actress was almost immediately clear to me, even if her character and her actions remain a bit of an enigma. As Lola Lola, Dietrich impressively navigates and reconciles seemingly antithetical character traits, a leggy temptress, domestic siren, callous adulteress, maybe even world-weary child. Nowhere is the actress's heavy performative lifting more clear than in her starkly differing performances of the song Falling in Love Again, the first seductive, flirty, gregarious, and inviting The second, almost confrontational, exculpatory, confessional, but in its very final moments, maybe self-reproaching. An estimation of von Sternberg is, on the other hand, maybe a bit trickier. For me, he was clearly effective in creating a gauzy, fetishistic glow around Dietrich, and I appreciated his other bold visuals, such as his use of expressionistic long shadows, and a repeated long take in the classroom of Professor Emanuel Rott, a visual bookend marking the beginning and end of his social descent. I'm less certain of what to make of the story of that descent, particularly in the heavy-handed moralizing of what can be read as a cautionary tale of feminine wiles that threaten the dignity of upstanding men. The story of von Sternberg and Dietrich will include, as Farron smith Nemi notes in her Criterion essay, a much greater cast of characters once they get to Paramount in the marathon's next film. But for now, in this first outing, I'm wondering from you guys, who of our two key players most excited you for what's to come? Our Hollywood superstar, or the self-described puppeteer pulling her strings? Thanks, guys. No surprise, the professor coming up with really, I think, Josh, the perfect question to embark 
on this marathon with and to discuss the Blue Angel with, it is pretty rare thinking about film spotting marathon history to have two collaborators. Now, we can go through some of the filmmakers we've covered, like Cassavetes and Bergman and others, and point out recurring stars they use or other members of their kind of troupe. But other than Herzog Kinski, we haven't really joined two artists together like this. And if your answer to Nathaniel's question is von Sternberg, you have to somehow forget the way Dietrich pretty much glows on screen every frame that she's in. If your answer is Dietrich, you have to forget that it's von Sternberg who gives her that glow through his handling of light and shadow and how he emphasizes her in the frame. I would love to give the answer that I think would defy conventional wisdom here, but I can't, despite how excited I am to see how von Sternberg evolves as a filmmaker. I'm really excited to watch how Dietrich really owns a movie. She basically owns this movie, even though she's really playing the femme fatale role to Jannings, an early screen femme fatale. But von Sternberg, at least in this film, isn't very interested, I don't think, in her inner life and Lola's inner life and her wants and her desires. Really, until the end, anyway, we get a glimpse of it through some of her actions and through Dietrich's performance. I think it's Dietrich mainly, though, making Lola feel like a more richly developed yes, character than she is, right? I agree so with that. can't wait to see more from her because you said earlier in the show, not familiar at all with von Sternberg's work and really with Dietrich. I think I've seen her in one other film, Witness for the Prosecution with Billy Wilder. Otherwise, a total blind spot for me. I was very excited about this marathon before, even more excited after seeing The Blue Angel. Yeah, I haven't seen any of his films, and I've only known her from Touch of Evil much later oh, in course. her career right. and not yeah. representative really yes. at all of her screen presence from what I understand. Um, yeah, I can't separate them either. That's the point of the marathon. But maybe if I was forced to, I'd pick Dietrich just because, and this will be interesting as we get into this review and talk about how we read the dynamic here and how it might represent maybe the behind the scenes, behind the camera dynamic, her cultural impact overshadowed his eventually in the sense that from what just doing some background reading, these are mostly considered by most people his best films, the one he made with her. Certainly later in his career, a few titles that get noticed as well as interesting pieces. But reading like David Thompson, for instance, on the both of them um, and a few others, it seems like she almost made his career through these films and yet was still able to work beyond him in ways that built upon her legend. Okay. And, and I don't know, pull that off. I don't know if that just, that's what I'm really eager to find out. Like yeah. as this progresses, as this marathon progresses, do we see that seesaw shift? I'm just speculating mm -hmm. here because again, I'm all new to this, but I'm really excited to see if we get any sense of that seesaw shifting. And I hope we don't overplay that and try to overinterpret these movies strictly through that lens, but it's definitely going to be fun to have that in the back of our minds and specifically when it comes to the blue angel thinking of Dietrich obviously as Lola Lola, but also of von Sternberg somewhat as the professor and how the movie I think does make a significant shift about halfway through so that its sympathies lie with the professor in many ways. And it's, as you suggested, much more interested in his interior life and his situation than it is in Lola Lola's. And yet because of her talent, she yanks that movie back towards her whenever she can. Yeah, she really does. And maybe, well, 
we could probably hold off a little bit, I suppose, before we get to the ending and the implication yeah, of that. I and think we should. The professor's downfall here. But I do want to acknowledge, as good as Dietrich is, I had almost as much fun watching Jannings, another actor I'm not familiar with at all. And right before we started recording, you touched on how much this did seem like a silent film, which is fitting, as it is 1930, and some of those techniques are still being employed. This is a very early sound film. But the early delights of this movie for me weren't Dietrich. They were Jannings. They were his face. Now, of course, she's in the scene, too. She's making the scene happen. She's making these moments happen. But it's Jannings' face, for example, when he's the guy who is scolding his students for succumbing to this kind of sordid lifestyle. But then as soon as he sees her for the first time, he almost literally can't stop looking at her. And the face he makes when they're sitting next to each other, and I love the way it's framed, too, where he's such a big, hulking presence, but he's sitting on a chair that makes him almost like a little schoolboy next to her, because that's what she reduces him to. And she says that he's quite handsome. And that face Jannings makes is one that just absolutely cracked me up, Josh. And I would go back and watch again and again. And I mentioned that he can't stop looking at her when he's walking to his reserved seat after one of their encounters. He walks down into the audience of this nightclub and he's being taken to this balcony seat. And he knows if he just walked there in 20 seconds, he would be able to stare at her all he wanted to. But he literally can't stop looking at her as he's walking. It takes him like two minutes to get up to the balcony because he has to look at her face. And we see it when they finally do have an encounter where he ends up staying at her place. And he's staring at her over breakfast. And even then at the end of the film, there's some symmetry. And there's a lot of symmetry and some parallels that are used in this film at the end when he hates her and is being fueled by his rage and jealousy. He can't stop looking at her then either as he's walking to the stage. He's still constantly looking back at her. So I really enjoyed watching him as well. Yeah, I think that silent film background really helps because as you're describing it, this is a performance of reactions. It's not. It's all in his response, and it's better to get that non-verbally. Mm-hmm. I was familiar with him from F.W. Murnau's The Last Laugh, which is a big silent performance. Um, And so I was a bit, especially at the beginning where you get some of that with the comedy, uh, a bit taken aback by it. But I think he tempers it and he tamps it down just a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, moving forward into a different kind of filmmaking while still retaining, you know, in the last laugh, he's this underemployed doorman who loses his job and he kind of burrows real heavily into the sorrow of that. And I think that's brought in here where it's a very sad performance. This is a guy who, even when he has the public reputation and the stature at the beginning of the film, you could see that um, he's not entirely fulfilled. There's something else missing. It's part of the reason why he goes to the Blue Angel under the guise of tracking down his students and reprimanding them. We're... Because of Jannings, we know there's more going on here right at the beginning. So, yes, he's very good. And I think you do need that to balance Dietrich's star wattage a little bit. Um, But it also makes it easier for the film to sway more into the professor's point of view and getting back to that. Seeing him as a sympathetic figure, I think a little bit at her expense when we do get to that ending. But before we get to that, we should probably talk a little bit about just the the theatricality of this, which I think is something we're going to spend a lot of time talking about from what I've read about von Sternberg's films. And here it's clear, like she's she's center stage for a purpose, but I like how he transferred the stage 
to almost every other scene mm. for her. So her dressing room very much becomes a stage or even that room after when they eventually get married, I think this is on their honeymoon, there's a very thin gauzy curtain yeah. in their room yeah. and she's seen through it changing in silhouette. And it's she might as well be on the stage at the Blue Angel there. And, and this is more performance than von Sternberg, but also the moment where she sticks her head out and then wraps the curtain around her body like... It's a dress that's fitting her I love just that perfectly. Moment. I love that moment, though. It's interesting that you credit her with that. And maybe it was a performance choice. But maybe it was him as director giving her that note. And there's a little bit of symmetry there, too, I would say. They meet in her dressing room with her disrobing. Yes. And here it's kind of interesting that even as they're now married and they should be very intimate, not that I'm suggesting she's being prudish in any way or covering up, but that is essentially what she's doing. She's wearing that slip and she could be more exposed. And in that moment, she feels compelled to draw that curtain over her just like it's a beautiful gown on her. Yes. It's part of her tease as well. That's her, you know, the primary persona the movie gives her. And we can talk about the performance more and the other layers that Dietrich brings because I think that's important. But the primary persona the movie gives her is definitely that of a tease. So that moment captures that quality. Um, I liked how this movie also leaned into, and we'll see if this is something that, you know, von Sternberg continues when he goes back to Hollywood, the German expressionism mm. of this film. There's a direct lift, speaking of Murnau, from Nosferatu of a creepy the boys. shadow the against boys the wall. when they go to beat up their classmate, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. That one, you want to talk about scares. I said Blair Witch didn't really scare me. <laughs> Just the callback to Nosferatu. Yes. Vampire movies always terrify me. Just the callback to it. I the, love it. That homage really really scared me. Yeah, it's, even though it's a, it's a steal, it, it works really great. And just, we don't get outside of the club or other buildings very often, but when we do, these, the rooftops, how they kind of, we see them through this smoky gloom and they're sort of looming over Jannings. And when the professor goes that first time to the club through these winding alleys, it's, they're, they're just like these dens of sin waiting yes. to devour him. Very expressionistic, different from the theatricality I was talking mm-hmm. about, but the two... The two styles work very well together, I think. Yeah, and with some of those nods to expressionism, there are some more perhaps subtle flourishes as well. And this is the problem with including Nathaniel in our marathon discussions is that almost invariably he points out something in his voicemail that I was going to bring up and feel very clever about. And it's that moment where he has now decided he hasn't proposed to her yet. But he goes back to school after their night together, and the students all make fun of him. A colleague comes in, dismisses the students, and says to him, you can't give up your whole life for this woman, for a woman like that. And he says in that moment, you're talking about who's going to be my wife. And I think it's him in that moment recognizing fully the feelings he has for her and the decision he's made by even uttering that out loud. The guy leaves, says he's going to have to report him. In that moment, his life is pretty much over, and he kind of sits slumping at the desk, reckoning with the heaviness of that moment. And von Sternberg's camera just very slowly tracks backwards, pulls back away from him, almost like the camera's doing the leaving of the room and the leaving of society. It's a shame to be. It is for him in that moment as he's actually slumped over and is motionless at the desk. If I had just seen it, only once there, I would have thought it was a beautiful rhetorical touch by the director, but then we get it again mm-hmm. at the very end of the film, suggesting the same thing, just as he was in some ways killing a version of himself, a version of himself was dying, the one that was part of genteel society, 
here he is at the end of the film, literally a dead man. Yeah, it's pretty devastating and, and a great bookend touch at the same time. So let's get back to Dietrich and talk a little bit more about her performance because what I liked about this teasing nature she has is that lets her play up the playfulness. That's certainly a part of this. I, I also like the touch when she's in her dressing room and really exaggeratedly adjusting these elaborate dresses that she wears, these costumes. Um, she she gets some humor out of that. So there's a sense of humor there. But what's striking is also is how much this frivolity can quickly shift to boredom. And when that happened, I saw the Dietrich face that I'd seen in so many stills mm. from other films. That was an interesting move for her to make there because it was almost like Oh, that's her. That like that. At least that's the one that I quote unquote know. Um, and it happens so quickly. The eyes just they go dark with disinterest. And it's also again part of the tease she's doing with him. Yeah. That she does with the audience for her act. It's always about how available she is in these songs she's singing, and her facial features capture that as well. But the thing that's really interesting about her is that you get snippets, and she even says at one point, of how she considers herself an artist. And I wanted to throw this at you just because it's marathon-related. At any point, the movie character she reminded me of the most, for some reason, is Ben Gazzara's artistically ambitious strip club owner in The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. I get it. I mean, it's the right milieu. Totally. And – she really doesn't seem maybe that talented, quite that talented to take on the mantle of artist, but she does seem to feel that way. She about considers her work. herself yeah. that, and I think that, uh, and and I think she, the performance believes that as well, um, which goes a long way from again letting her simply be this um, sort of sinister figure that I, I think the movie really does want her to be by the end. Okay, well let's go ahead and go there, then, okay. Josh, because I think we have to talk about those sympathies when you discuss this movie. And I guess I want to give von Sternberg a little credit for being more deliberately ambiguous. There's no doubt that the movie suggests that she is his downfall. Though, I think you could argue, and I think you've already hinted at this, the life he's leading beforehand isn't exactly the most fulfilled life. So he doesn't fall maybe as far as he thinks he's fallen. Yes. Right? I think that that's very clear in He's the way von Sternberg establishes this. Hypocrite is the key word. Yes. And this is why, Josh, I don't have actually much pity for him at all. Why I think von Sternberg manages to play both sides of this pretty capably. Yes, you have to, on some level, have pity for the man. He's a completely broken shell of himself at the end. And he is obsessed with her. He does love, I guess if you want to use that word, obsessed probably is the more accurate word. But he does love his wife, who is someone who seems like she's hell-bent on betraying him. So absolutely understand his jealousy in the moment, and like I said, you can pity him. But Lola is never anything but exactly who she always says she is. Yes, she might be a little bit of a tease, but she says in that signature song that we hear at one point earlier in the film, and then we hear at the very end of the film, that love is a game. This is the great song, Fallen in Love Again, can't help it. She says, love has always been my game. Play it how I may. I was made that way. Can't help it. Men cluster to me like moths around the flame. And if their wings burn, I know I'm not to blame. She's already told us who she is, and she only lives up to that billing. And that's the difference between her and 
the professor character. He is a complete hypocrite. He's someone who lives by a certain code or suggests he lives by a certain kind of moral and ethical code, but of course finds himself completely drawn into this lifestyle, so much so that he's willing to completely throw all of that away and follow her. And then when he does that, he's not satisfied or fulfilled by that either. And he's so embarrassed about who he is and what he's become that he doesn't want to go back to the hometown. It'd be one thing if, like her, he actually embraced his new lifestyle and said, okay, you know what? I'll be the clown. At least I'm with her. I'm in love with her. But he can't do that either. He's never comfortable with who he really is early in the film or later in the film, whereas she really never changes. So I don't really have sympathy for him, even though that's kind of the tragic comic arc, no doubt, of the material. I think he's being actually pretty subversive, Von Sternberg. So we should say, just in case there's anyone listening who hasn't watched the film, he does marry her, joins, follows her. He gets fired, so he doesn't have a job. Follows her in the troupe as they travel around to other nightclubs. And after a while, eventually, at first he has to sell postcards of her to try to make money as part of the troupe. And eventually he takes the part of a clown where he is kind of reduced to the bottom rung of the ladder with the troupe. So that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, Okay, so here's why I read it differently. I think the movie is much more, I don't know if subversive I would go that far, but much more nuanced and ambivalent about him at the beginning than it is at the end. And that's initially what I really liked about it is that moment where he, the postcards that he takes from his students, he confiscates from his students and we get the shot. These are really interesting. They're postcards of her, pictures of her, but actual fabric makes up the skirt. Oh yes. So if you blow on Uh the strings of the fabric, you can see under her skirt. The first thing he does when he's alone back in his house is blow on the postcard. See, it's really funny. I didn't see that as really sexual or erotic at all. I just saw it as him feeling like he had to interact with her in some way. I oh, didn't see it as it's, well, what e- you did, and you're probably completely correct. Yeah, either either way, yeah. if he was just confiscating them to confiscate them, whatever the, the no, specific motivation point. is, he would have tossed them away. Okay, so right there we start to see, okay, this guy's kind of, he, he is a hypocrite. And when that more anger he sends towards his students, we see that he's really just dealing with his own repression. Mm-hmm. So very early on, how about the scene with the sailor who comes in backstage to Lola's room and essentially tries to buy her for the night. And the professor is there and he stands up to defend her honor. Well, the way that von Sternberg also gives the shot of him looking under the desk at her legs. So it's not that he really wants anything much different than the sailor. He's just being more delicate about it. In fact, let me say that I'm glad you brought up the captain in that scene because I think that's another parallel that he deliberately draws. Remember how that whole scene culminates? He basically feels like he owns her. He should have her. Yes. And it turns into a fight and the police come and the captain wants the professor character for standing in his way, wants him to be put in handcuffs or whatever. Well, how does the film ultimately end? It ends with him, the professor, putting himself in exactly the same position as the captain. Now the one demanding that she behave a certain way, causing a huge ruckus there in the theater and ultimately ending up in a straitjacket. He's the one who is essentially arrested and subdued back there. Yeah. So there's not much difference between those two. But I would argue that once we get the marriage, and I think It would have gone a long way if we had a better sense of Lola's motivation for even bothering to marry. Because I understand completely what you're saying about her not being a hypocrite and saying, here's who I am. Deal with it. But the decision to marry 
is saying something else. And I don't think the movie ever really tells us it's not for money because he loses his job. Um, And and I think if we had a sense of that, we would have had a better sense of her character. But I do think from that point, the shift begins towards the professor. And and we realize there's that very early moment where he has a songbird in his apartment that has died. The first time he goes backstage to her, she has a songbird. And suddenly we get this sense that she is his songbird in a way which allows the possibility that it's just not some sort of lust or infatuation. Perhaps, in fact, he does appreciate her on some level as an artist. So all of a sudden he Mm. becomes a little bit more pure in his intentions. And I think the more touches like that we get of the professor, the less we get of Lola when she's on stage singing that song, we get hints of how she might feel. But otherwise, we see a lot of her just acting sharply and cruelly to him. Those are most of the scenes she's given in the second half of the film. That's all. She plays them with nuance, but that's what she's given. That's the material she's given, where I think he is giving uh, more sorrowful notes all the way to that tragic finale where she's nowhere to be found and he's forced on stage back in his hometown to quote unquote perform for everyone who is just there to see his downfall. I mean, that's that's just an enormous shift in narrative, in pure screen time and in depiction of a character. And I don't see this as a huge failing of the film. I, I just I just think that it's very I could totally understand a reading of this film that sees it's more of a moralizing. Yes effort than any sort of even curiosity exploitation piece of the time. I think it ultimately does fall back on this. Women are, there are a couple of things. They're domestic servants. We see the professor servant, right? They're nags. We see the magician troop owner's wife constantly berating him. Or there's these seductive sirens who are going to take you down. That's really what we get in the film. Again, Good film. Enjoyed it quite a bit. But uh, that reading, I can understand if it would bother someone. I can, too, for all the reasons you mentioned. I don't put as much stock in the songbird metaphor as you do. I saw it more as a representation of the repressed, unhappy life he was leading and the unrepressed life that she is leading, that he is, whether he's consciously doing or not, that he is drifting towards. And it's just a representation of how different they really are. And I think, obviously, I'm putting more stock in the hypocrisy that I think von Sterberg wants us to be keenly aware of. But you're talking about the roles of women. I joked on our Slack with you and Sam about this before the show. Sometimes odd little connections happen completely unplanned between the movie we discussed in the main review and the marathon. And the moral of this show, if you're a total idiot, is never follow a woman because it will only lead to your downfall. It's in the Blair Witch Project. Back to Heather. (laughs) Exactly. Back to Heather. Joking aside, though, both movies, Josh, do culminate with a woman's confession, a confession that is notably being made to the audience both times, being made to us. Heather talking to the camera in the tent in the Blair Witch Project. And Dietrich, I would say her confession is her singing that song, Falling in Love Again, Can't Help It, at the end of this film. And I'm definitely putting a lot of stock in the way Dietrich performs that number, the way von Sternberg shoots her, the way she's sitting in that chair so powerfully and so in control of her body in the moment. And she's expressing exactly who she is with no sense of guilt whatsoever. And it's easy to think about this movie in relation to Cabaret, because, of course, a German 
film or a film set in Germany, of course, in a nightclub, Sally Bowles, a very similar character to Lola in a lot of ways. And I don't think that's by accident. I think Fosse actually had to be influenced by and was very much paying a little bit of tribute with Sally Bowles to Lola Lola because of the black outfit she's wearing, the kind of slinkiness to the way she's sitting. She seems like a character straight out of a Fosse musical, completely in charge of her identity and her sexuality at the end of that film, even though we don't get any of those Fosse characters for another 35 or 40 years. Yeah, that's definitely a connection, even though I haven't seen the movie myself. I could see the likely influence that it had. I'm going to make a connection again back to kind of what I said at the start, now that we've gotten through to the ending. And I do think it's interesting to keep in mind as we go forward in the marathon, just how there might be parallels between the professor and Lola and Dietrich and von Sternberg in terms of their careers. Because essentially you could say, you know, quote unquote, von Sternberg found her here, even though she was a star already in Germany, but he found her in a way that's the myth that the professor finds Lola. Yes. And we'll see, but maybe both men are ultimately defined by her according to her terms. You know, when you think of where yes. their careers go and and we'll see what their these further films reveal. But I do want to ask you one more question too. Um, it has to do with the really unnerving clown we meet early on, played by <laughs> Reinhold Burnt. Who just kind of finds his way into shots randomly. Yeah, he's yeah. always in the background, and he's watching. He has this grim face, yeah. very sad eyes, and he's emaciated, silent. He never really says anything. So maybe this is obvious, but the professor is putting on that exact clown nose towards the end, and I'm thinking... That clown, the earlier clown, was a former lover Could have been. of Lola's. Could have been. Who went through the same cycle. Yeah. Because once, I think once they get married, I may be wrong, but I don't think that clown played by Reinhold Berndt is seen again. It's almost like the cycle, he's been shifted out and she's moved on to the professor and to complete it. It's not done till he puts on the clown outfit. I like that theory a lot. As I said, I think we're meant to see a parallel even in that captain character that suggests that if given the chance, almost any older man, at least, with any kind of money or standing is going to try at some point to own her and will be driven to rage and jealousy by her. Yeah. Yeah. That's another parallel that's there for sure. The Blue Angel, as we said, is available right now on Amazon Prime or you can get it via your local library if you are lucky enough to have a local library that traffics in movies like these that is the place you're going to have to go if you really want to follow along with the rest of this marathon and we have talked about behind the scenes whether or not this was truly a good marathon to embark on or not when the movies are this hard to find but whether it's your library or if you have the means and can get the criterion collection edition that has all of their collaborations not the blue angel it's their hollywood collaborations then obviously that could be a route you go as well but if you see this one and have thoughts we'd love to hear them feedback at filmspotting.net next week we will discuss 1930s same year but going to hollywood morocco starring dietrich along with gary cooper the full marathon lineup is available at filmspotting.net slash marathons and josh that is our show it is if you want more marathons you can find 
all of them on our website at filmspotting.net in the show archives. We also have reviews there, interviews and top fives going back to 2005. Also at filmspotting.net, you can vote in that very problematic film spotting poll asking who is the decade defining actress of the 2010s. If you want some film spotting merch, t-shirts and the like, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. If you want to subscribe to the weekly film spotting newsletter, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. And to find us on social media, look for Adam at filmspotting. Look for me at Larson on film. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Out in limited release this weekend here in Chicago, Light of My Life, directed by and starring Casey Affleck, Loose with Octavia Spencer, Naomi Watts, and Tim Roth. At least I think I'm saying that movie correctly, Josh. It's L-U-C-E. Them That Follow is also out, starring Caitlin Deaver, Olivia Coleman, and Walton Goggins. Out in wide release, a golden retriever learns that the techniques needed on the racetrack can also be used to successfully navigate the journey of life, Josh. The Art of Racing in the Rain, the only title these days I find more cumbersome than whatever that Doctor Strange and the Mouth of Madness and the Multiverse or whatever it is. You forgot to mention who's in The Art of Racing in the Rain. I did. Kevin Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner. Yeah. Wow. I love Kevin Costner. I'm not going to see this movie. No, no. I'm not going to go see that. Amanda Seyfried also stars Brian Banks, is out Dora and the Lost City of Gold, and. The Kitchen, great cast in that one. Elizabeth Moss, Melissa McCarthy, and Tiffany Haddish. It's the directing debut of Andrea Burloff, the Oscar-nominated writer of Straight Outta Compton. Next week on the show, we're going to talk about The Nightingale from director Jennifer Kent and, as we said, the next film in that Dietrich von Sternberg marathon, Morocco. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.